Hello and a warm welcome to our podcast, Borders Blatherings, the podcast that shines a light on the curious, shadowy and often magical history of the Scottish borderlands. Mary, today our chosen topic for this installment is the Navi riots that took place here in the middle of the 19th century. Indeed, yes, it is. The Navi riots. Now, before we begin, I have a confession to make. When I first saw your email some weeks ago suggesting this as a topic, I thought you had written the Navy riots. That would have been interesting in the borders. And I racked through the archive of my amateur historian brain, and I were far from water, I couldn't really remember anything about Navy riots. So, Navi rights, N-A-V-V-Y, do they have any connection with water? Were the Navi's um, shipbuilders or canal and aqueduct builders? Uh, originally, the Navi's that we think of that built the railways were originally navigators who built the canals, and originally canals were navigations because you navigate through water. So that's where the name Navi comes from. So you're right, water, yeah. Good. So we have a context, at least, for, context. for the use of yes. the word Navi, N-A-V-V-Y. Yep. So Navi riots here in the Scottish borderlands. Absolutely. Let's have some background on it. Okay, where to begin? Okay, so you're in the middle of the 19th century, and it's the heyday of the Victorian railway expansion. Mm-hmm. And all the big guys, so it's names like Brunel, whom we've all heard of, and they decide they're going to build railways all over the place, and they do. They build something like 3,000 miles of railway in Great Britain. I know we're speaking kilometres today, but it was miles then. And they employed thousands of navvies to do the hard physical work. And in all of these ventures, you have people who make an awful lot of money, the people who own the railways, the people who own the, the uh, railway trains, the people who run the services, the people who invest in it. And then at the bottom end of the pile, you've got the navvies, itinerant workers, who earn basic minimum wage. I mean, really basic minimum wage. And the navvies that we're talking about were mostly Irish. Ah. Now, about 30% of the navvies that worked on the railways were Irish, but that figure almost doubles when you come up to Scotland. And when you come into the borders, it's almost all Irish navvies that are working there. Oh, that's interesting. So we've got this huge amount of of building work that's going on. And then you move forward to about 1850-odds, sorry, late 1840s, and they decide they're going to build a railway south from Edinburgh down to London. So it comes south out of Edinburgh, through Midlothian, through borders, onto Carlisle, and then connecting on to London. And it becomes known as the Waverley Line because uh, of Sir Walter Scott, of course, and his Waverley novels. So that's why it becomes the Waverley Line. And this railway line is built by Irish navvies, whose paying conditions are horrendous. And because of all of this and because of other factors, you end up with a series of riots, but one in particular that we're going to focus on today, I think, is the best bet. Okay, so before, thank you, before we get to the riots themselves, let's get a bit of context here. Mm -hmm. You're saying that the vast majority of the navvies that were down here building the, the Waverley Line were, in fact, from Ireland. Yes. We're in the 1840s, 1850s. Mm -hmm. Is there a connection then with the so-called Great Hunger or Great Famine that's going on in Ireland at the time? We're right in the centre of the Great Famine. Yeah. So you've got this mass emigration of the Irish 
A lot of them going across to Glasgow to work there in the factories and some of them coming and getting jobs as navvies. And this is where you end up with these itinerant workers. Um, and they're also, you know, these are landless peasants because of the landlordism that you've got in Ireland. They're just coming across. There's nothing else they can do but move to, to Canada, to America, to Scotland, to England. And that's where you get these huge numbers of, of Irish immigrants coming over with their families. And the navvies brought their families with them when they were building the railways. It wasn't just lads. They had their wives and their kids with them as they were building. So we have, in a sense, from Ireland, a, a, if I can make that point, a forced migration. If I can do a bit of cross-historical referencing <laughs> here. If I think of Lords Lucan and Raglan of Charge of the Light Brigade mm -hmm. infamy, mm -hmm. infamy mm -hmm. um, they were both rich landowners in Ireland, yep. and they forcibly remo removed many people yep. who were... Um, smallholding farmers. Uh, I can see why they would make the journey to centres of industry like Glasgow, but so many of them end up down here yes, in the Scottish borders. One thing that strikes me is a little bit um, a potato blight happens, a disease of the potato crop in Ireland. Yeah. That's a very natural phenomenon, mm -hmm. force majeure, if you will. Mm -hmm. But a potato famine is a different thing. Oh yeah, that's a political. This, act. Has, this has this has politics, control, and distribution written Absolutely. all over it. Absolutely. So this forces many of the the, the navvies to to up sticks and move. Yes. Well, it forces it forces rural workers from Ireland to come across to Britain for work, and because they're Irish and because they're Catholic, and because they're a bit you know well the foreign or migrants, we're not really very fond of them. They're not getting decent work. They're not getting settled work. So they're getting work that's incredibly hard and incredibly low paid. And that's the navvies. Even people like Brunel, the great Brunel, whom we all love uh, and revere as a great engineer, and he was, he was not happy about workers' conditions because he didn't think they were... He actually didn't want the workers to be well paid. I know that sounds really odd, but he didn't because he thought if they were too well paid, they'd get a bit lazy and they wouldn't work quite as hard. So he wanted the conditions and the pay to be quite poor. There was no compensation if you were injured. There was no compensation for death. I mean, at one point, the death rate for navvies working on the railways was higher than the death rate in the Battle of Waterloo. I mean, that's how dangerous the, the jobs were. And the engineers just didn't want... They wanted to build the railways as cheaply as possible and the only way to keep the price down was to pay the workers absolutely hee-haw. But originally, these were not navvies. The lads that came across from Ireland were originally peasant farmers, and they all of a sudden had to work. And there's a big difference. If you're a rural worker, you're a hard worker, but you get up in, you know, you get up in the morning when the sun rises, and you work all the way through the day while there's light. But you stop every couple of hours to rest because you know you have to rest your animals. Yeah. So you'll do two hours of ploughing, and then you'll rest, or you do two hours of harvesting and rest or whatever. If you're a navvy, you get up at the crack of dawn, you start working, you work for 12 or 14 solid hours, you ain't getting no rest. And some of them even worked through the night by candlelight or lamps because it was driving this railway on the whole time. And the dropout rate and the death rate was unbelievable. And also the fact that they lived in unbelievably bad conditions. If you think of the worst, the worst garden hut you've ever seen in your life, it's been abandoned for 50 years. Mm. Even that was better than, this, than where they lived. They had to build these shacks. They had no sanitation. They had no access to running water. Disease was rife. They were exhausted. And so the dropout rate through injury and death was, was immense 
whilst the likes of Brunel and these big guys, you know, the, the North British Railway Company, while they are making massive profits. So you can see where the navvies are not a happy workforce. They are not a content workforce that's not going to riot. These, these are guys that are basically on the edge. And as I say, they brought their wives and their children with them. The conditions where they lived were so bad that they actually used to put their children into cages. They would have, if you imagine like a dog cage, you would put your wee boy or wee girl in the dog cage and hang it from the ceiling so that the rats couldn't get to your children. That's how bad their living conditions were. So many of them have left Ireland where they've been displaced by rich landowners. I read accounts of uh, landowners like Lord Lucan um, using crowbar gangs to go around and forcibly evict people from land. And they're not coming over here um, to the promised land. No, absolutely not. Now, I hesitate often to ask this question because it's your favourite topic, but... To what extent does popery lie behind a lot of the issues that, that, that happened here? There's a huge problem. The Irish come over and, of course, they are predominantly Catholic and Scotland is, and the borders is, predominantly Protestant. And as we talked about previously in one of our podcasts about the witches, um, a pretty solid Calvinist Church of Scotland. Yeah. So instantly they are foreign because they are Catholic. And, of course, because they're Catholic, there aren't really that many Catholic churches to go to. So they don't go to church on a Sunday. So they're godless. So they're not only Catholic, but they're godless Catholic. And then they work for six days in literally picks, shovels, dynamite, moving the soil. So they're dirty. So they're the dirty Irish. And then they get paid on a Saturday and they get very, very drunk. Well, why wouldn't you if you've been working solidly for six days yeah. and you've been treated like... So they're drunken Irish. So they're godless, Catholic, drunken Irish. And that, that's really where that stereotype starts to, to, to take hold, especially in Scotland, of the dirty Irish. If you think of the book, um, The House of the Green Shutters, mm. um, there's a scene in there where a couple of the characters are talking, and this is just before the railway comes in, into that book, and they talk about the dirty Irish. So that becomes what they are. That prejudice is they are dirty. They are godless, heathen, drunken, dirty Irish. And we don't want anything to do with them. And the Church of Scotland won't let them across the door. So even if they wanted to go to church on Sunday, they kind of get into the Protestant churches. The church really doesn't like them. And the thing is that the coming of the railways wasn't universally, oh, it's a great idea. Some people thought it was great. It would open the place up. Um, factory owners thought this was great they could get raw materials in yeah. finished products yeah. out there was a certain section of society that didn't actually want the railway um, a lot of fathers were not very fond of this because possibly their daughters could go on the railway and go and yeah. visit disreputable young men oh dear and a lot of the upper classes didn't like it because well did that mean that their servants could move about the place and I don't know where my servants are and there were all sorts of things where there was a, an advert a little cartoon advert in Punch and advised ladies to carry pins and to put pins in their mouths when they went through tunnels in case gentlemen took advantage of them and tried to kiss them. Um, wow. Slightly tongue-in-cheek, but not that much. And ministers railed about this because people could go on trains on the Sabbath and they could move about instead of going to church like good Christians. So, you know, there was quite a lot of resentment about the railways over and above the fact that for some people it was great, but for others it was, well, not quite sure who's going to use it and how are they going to use it. So... And that, of course, lands on the navvies because Brunel's not hanging about the Scottish borders. The, the, the directors of the North British 
railway company are not hanging about in the borders. The only persons that are there, the only people that are there that can take all of this nonsense on board are the Irish navvies because there's nobody else to, to shout at. You mentioned um, that we're not talking a riot, we're talking multiple riots mm. that took place. Yeah. What are the key stages leading up to this? You painted this picture of people who were then taking the blame yeah. for much, that yeah. they were incomers who were dirty, yeah. Yeah. drunk, mm-hmm. godless. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were disrupting farming, farmland yeah. was being, you know, there was noise, there was smell, there was dust everywhere. And it was the navvies, you know, it was those dirty Irish doing all these sorts of things. So this builds up and builds up and builds up. And so the Irish are working incredibly hard. The navvies are working incredibly hard. They're living in disgusting conditions. Uh, the death rate amongst their children is through the roof. I think it's something like two in every five kids doesn't make it to their fifth birthday. It's ridiculous situations. Um, they're, you know, they're barred from shops. They can't go anywhere. They've got no running. They're living in disgusting conditions. They're treated really, really badly. Their pay is really, really poor. And on a Saturday night, when the lads go to the pub to get drunk, as you would do, the, some of the pubs refuse to serve them. And yeah. so this just builds and builds and builds and builds. And in the borders, the first incident that really affects the borders actually happens up at Fushy Bridge in 1846, where there's a huge incident. Now, we're not quite sure of the detail of this incident, but something happens and a police constable is actually killed there. And that sparks a huge wave of prejudice against the Irish navvies. Now, we don't know it was definitely an Irish navvy that killed this police constable, but the assumption is. So here we go. So you fast forward to 1848 and you've got a thousand navvies in the borders building this railway line. And in the early part of July, there's a huge fight in Gal Shields. And uh, the, the police turn up. And they catch a lot of the Irish navvies. So there's this huge fight. The lads are fighting. There's Galashiels lads there. There's Irish navvies there. There's folk rolling about in, in over Horse Street and all the rest of it. The police pitch up and they arrest all the Irish navvies. They don't arrest any of the lads from Galashiels. The Irish navvies are taken up to court and they are all found guilty of a fray and sent to prison, which is another huge issue because it's not like prison today where you have rehabilitation. Prison then was punishment. Yeah. People died in prison because of the treatment. And even if you got out after six months, it didn't matter. That was it. You had been in prison. That was your reputation completely gone and you couldn't get any work. So not only were you a drunken, godless, uh, dirty Irish, but you had a criminal record now as well. So it was a real problem. And uh, the thing is, over Horse Street is where the sort of centre of Galashiels was at that time. Although they had about 15,000 people in the place, most people lived there. So the police could cordon the area really easily and therefore should have been able to catch the Galashiels lads. But for some reason, none of them get arrested. The Irish are furious about this. The navvies are absolutely raging about this. And they decide that they're going to have a revenge attack on the police. Now, how much of this is talk, how much of this is premeditated, we're not quite sure. But they decide that the following Saturday, which is the, um, oh lordy, dates in July, the following Saturday, they decide that they're going to attack the police in Stow. And they choose Stow for a couple of reasons, partly because there are fewer men in Stow to fight them, because Stow's tiny compared to Gala, but also because of where Stow's situated, if the police attack them, they can disappear into the into the fields, the surrounding fields and hills. This is the sort of idea, we think. And uh, that's fine, but there's a lot of talk and the police get to hear about it. 
So there's a superintendent called Alfred John List. He's a superintendent of the Edinburgh County Police. He fears about this. Now, he was in charge when the chap was murdered up at Fushy Bridge that we talked about earlier. And he decides, I'm not having this. So on top of the local police, he brings down sergeants and constables from Edinburgh in advance of this alleged big riot that's going to happen in Stow. So it gets to Saturday night, everybody gets paid, everybody gets drunk, and the fight starts, tumbles out. Now, Stow is tiny, but at that time it had at least three pubs and at least three, if not four, drinking dens. So you can get drunk anywhere in Stow. A fight kicks off in one of the pubs and they end up at the crossroads in Stow. Kicking, fighting, screaming, bawling, shouting, and the police turn up. And the police bat and charge the Irish navvies. And the Irish navvies pick up their pickaxes and charge back. There's a full-on riot going. The men of Stout disappear. Mm. They're having nothing to do with this. They've gone. And it's now a pitched battle between the navvies and the police. And this is where Superintendent List comes in. And for a mid-century, 19th-century police officer, he is incredibly intelligent. He doesn't continue to bat and charge the Irish. He doesn't try and catch any of them and arrest any of them because he knows how this can just get worse and worse and worse. Very what enlightened he does is, for that time. Very enlightened for that time. What he does is he tells his police to clear the village of the navvies. And that's what they do. They clear the village. They drive all of the navvies out into the fields. Not a single one is arrested. Not one. And that's the end of the riot. Except it's not really. It stopped that riot, but it didn't stop the continuing fighting, the continuing arguing. I mean, you have a riot down in Clovenfords, for goodness sake. You have more riots in Gala Shields. You have riots in Selkirk, in Melrose, in Hoyt. Wherever oh. you've got these navvies working, because this name, this prejudice, the dirty eyes just follows them all the way down through the valleys and down through the borders as they're working. In 1849, there's an outbreak of cholera in the borders. I don't know if it started off in the navvies' huts or not, but they get the blame. But it was their fault. Church of Scotland comes up and doesn't say, oh dear, they've got cholera, we need to help them. Yeah. They just scream, clear them. And in several areas where the navvies are out actually working on the lines, Local people, led by the minister, go and set fire to their huts. So they work all day and they come home and there's nothing. Their huts are gone. Literally, the wife and the kid is standing there going, half a dozen big guys came and set fire to everything. They've lost all their possessions. And this follows them all the way down, these continued riots, these continued levels of prejudice. Uh, I mean, at one point... The number of navvies in Britain, to put it into perspective, at one point the number of navvies in Britain exceeded the armed forces put together, oh, the really? army and the navy yeah, put together. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a feeling from the population that they're under attack, that these people are coming in with their foreign ways, and every prejudice, every pent-up prejudice gets lumped onto the Irish. And of course, we're only talking about 1848 to 1862 when the railways are, are built in the borders. That's not that far away from 1832 in the Reform Act. Yeah. And, of course, the Reform Act had allowed more than, you know, two people in the whole of Scotland to vote. Maybe it went up to four people in the whole of Scotland. <laughs> um, but that had been really disruptive, and people had been frightened by that. And there were, 
there were all sorts of things going on in Europe. There were little riots and little revolutions happening from about the 1830s all the way through to, of course, the big ones that happened in 1848 across Europe. So all the newspapers were saying revolution in Paris, revolt in Berlin, revolt in Vienna from agitators and political reformers and foreigners. And here you are in the borders and you've got a thousand Irish navvies with their wives and their children. They had come lock, stock and barrel. So the fear on one side and the prejudice on the other just is completely explosive. And even when they got down as far as Carlisle and the rail line was actually finished, very few of the Irish settled in the borders because of the prejudice, because of the riots that had happened here. And that's quite noticeable that there were fights elsewhere in Scotland. I was thinking the lines. that, yeah. yeah. Very few Irish family names in this part exactly of the world. Exactly, in this yeah. part of the world. Because they moved, they realised after they'd built the line, they continued building the line, but when the lines were finished, they migrated back. Admittedly, a lot of them migrated back into big cities like yeah. Glasgow and Liverpool, as you would expect. Yeah. But they really were not made welcome in the borders. It was really a case of, OK, you've done your job, now go away, please go away, we don't want you here, you, you you know, you are the dirty Irish and we don't want you here in our nice, pristine countryside. And they very quickly, um, because they're made so unwelcome, they very quickly leave, although we still have the legacy of the railways. Um, you know, even after the railway is built, there are some navvies that start to work as surfacemen, which is really uh, a very dangerous job, but it's, yeah. it's needed to maintain the railway until people are trained up. But even after that, there are very few that stick around to be surfacemen. They they leave. Yeah, it, it, but in, in you, you mentioned legacy. In terms of legacy, as many of the navvies were displaced tenant farmers who, in a former life, would have had a detailed relationship with nature and with the land, surely these navvies must have had some positive impact on the landscape, on the understanding of the natural world around us while they were working and labouring. Yeah, interestingly, what, what has been left are there stories. There are a lot of border ballads. There's Tam Lynn, there's Thomas the Rhymer, mm. there's all these different stories. And if you actually read them, there's an awful lot of an Irish influence there in some of the later versions. And some of the lines, the way the lines were laid... I mean, they had the, they had the engineers, but the way the navvies worked the land was actually very intricate. I mean, it was a very very skilled job yeah, being a navvy. Yeah, you weren't yeah. just you weren't just shoveling away a, a lump of rock or anything like that. It was quite skilled. And so, what's interesting, I think, are the ones that actually did stay, the ones that you find maybe in the late eighteen sixties and early eighteen seventies, and they're working as dry stain dikers, or they're working as Maori men or they're working as rabbit catchers. It tended to be the guys that were single, not the ones with families, because yeah. the ones with yeah. families had to provide, so they would go back to the cities. But there are a few that wandered, and funnily enough, on their own, as individuals, they were sort of welcomed. It was only when they arrived en masse, en masse. Yeah. Yeah. and appeared to be taking over because they were churning up the countryside. But once the railway settles in and everybody gets used to the railway, then people are are quite accepting of, oh, that's the old Maori man there, that's Paddy the Maori man, because he's an oddity, but he's not threatening in any way because he's not churning up the countryside and putting in an iron horse. What he's doing is he's working 
with the countryside. He's yes. becoming a rabbit catcher or a dry stain diker. And so they just merge into the rural economy and the rural landscape. And so that level of prejudice falls away because he's not the dirty Irish. He's the rabbit catcher. He's not the godless Irish because he's not He's not going to church in the Church of Scotland on a Sunday, but it's not noticeable that he's not there because there's only one of them. He's not getting incredibly drunk on a Saturday night, or if he is, he'll sit in the corner and sing you an Irish song, and isn't that lovely? Yeah. And so that's where that level of prejudice dissolves away when it's an individual as opposed to an en masse. I, I've seen that when I went to a, an American friend's wedding <laughs> in Ireland. And I was standing in a pub one night with all the guests uh, who were American, and uh, guy in a corner just starts singing. And I turned around, and all of the Americans were in tears. Oh, yes. An Irishman singing in a pub. Well, you you, you pub. can't lack it. I mean, you cannot beat that. You? And I said to them, any night. <laughs> yes. This is not a night. This, yeah. yes. Any night, you'll find that. You will find that. And can I just finish with, with uh, one comment? When I was living in and working in Germany, I had a friend, an Irish friend, who had a pub in Erlangen, in Franconia. And it's the first time I came across a reference to Scottish treatment of Irish people. Mm. Because behind the bar, he had a map of the United Kingdom. But there was no Scotland. Oh, right. <laughs> One of those maps. Yeah. And I asked him the logic of that. Because, you know, it, we're all Celts together. You know, we're all best friends. We have a common enemy in the English and, 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 and this sort of narrative. But he went very deeply into issues such as the treatment of Irish workers. In Scotland. Mm -hmm. And you've shone a light on mm -hmm. how badly the Irish navvies were treated in this part of the world. Yeah. I find that very fascinating. Yeah. Mary, thank you very much. That no, was no problem. Uh, enlightening, interesting, and somewhat sad. Indeed. But what we have to do is one other big legacy that the Irish brought to the borders, and it's sometimes forgotten, is that without the railway, we might not have had the rise of the mills in the way in which they did in the borders. And maybe I, we can explore that in our next podcast. That's something we have to move on to then, yeah, quite logically, so. in our yeah. next podcast. Definitely. I look forward to that very much. Thank you again, Mary. Okay. Great blethering to you. Absolutely. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>